Well, when I, a few weeks ago, told you that I was going to be taking a trip with my boys up to North Manitou Island, how many of you knew that you would be hearing stories about that? Yeah, on the way home, you go, yeah, we're going to hear about this, right? Yeah, interesting experience. It had a thing didn't work out quite the way we wanted it to work out. You know, it's like we we went right when we should have gone left, and then a bunch of bad things happened. We had a map. It was a really nice map, but we didn't, at that point, we didn't stop and follow it. We just kind of went with our instincts, which were really bad, and things went really bad, really, really bad. Uh, From there, the story that I'm going to tell you then is not the story that I wanted to be able to tell you And that's the way it works in life, right? Because we have our story, and then we're not the author, but God is the author. We had some of our families up in the Canadian Shield, you know, the rocky cap on the earth up in Canada, up in the Algonquin Provincial Park a couple of weeks ago, and they didn't write the story like, we're going to get caught in a tornado and hide under our canoes, but that's the story that God wrote for them. It made my story look kind of lame after they told me their story, you know, kind of like, how have you brought your Bibles today? Raise your hand if you brought you a copy of the Bible. Look at that Bible carrying church. That's good. How many of you have a pretty Bible? Anybody have a pretty Bible today? Who has a pretty Bible? Bob Harold. Yeah. Bob has a Bob has a pretty Bible. He has a nice royal blue iPad mini. Is that right? Can I see it? Thank you. I always wanted one of these. Isn't that cool? Yeah, all right. So he's got the ele- he's a deacon carrying the electronic Bible, so that means that's cool. All right, who else has a pretty Bible today? Anybody got a pretty Bible? How many of you? There you go. Zach, that's a serious, you can tell you're serious when you come to church with a Bible that size. It's like he didn't come to play today. He brought a serious Bible. A little sermonette for him. He wants a, you know. How many of you have, any, have an expensive, le- Paul, you probably have an expensive leather Bible, don't you? I, I have, but then I didn't bring my ESV. Oh, here I outed you right in front of everybody. You, you don't have your. <laughs> He has a really expensive, I know he happens to have a very expensive leather Bible. Sorry if I wasn't allowed to tell people that. Anyway, so if you're, if you're hurting for money, just rip off his Bible and pawn it. This is worth a lot. And your friend edited your Bible, right? He has a special study Bible. And we have these Bibles. How many of you use your Bible like as a decoration? Just a nice decoration. You just put it yeah, you do that? You ever notice some people put their Bible in the back window of their car and the sun just kind of warps it and you kind of go by and you're like, nice. Like, you ever take that thing out? Like they take it into church and then they put it back in the back window of their car. Sun and water are really bad on Bibles. But there's one thing that's even worse. It's like not using it. And here's the embarrassing thing. We had a, we had a map. of We went to North Manitou Island like about 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And we, we experienced such a, we had such a great experience that what we did was we took a map of North Manitou Island and the boys used it to decorate the wall of their room for probably six or eight years. Six or eight years. They had a map on the wall. A map of North Manitou Island on the wall. I mean, every time I went into their bedroom to talk with them or to tuck them in at night, I could have consulted the North Manitou Island map but it wasn't anything that we looked at. It was just a decoration. That's all it was. As a result of that, we went right when we should have gone left, and we went right really early in our trip, not late in our trip. So it messed up the entire trip, and we went on an unimproved trail. This is unimproved meaning 
It has logs and trees over it and washouts and it's wet and it has climbed. This is horrible. Because we had a map that we used for a decoration. Now, that's not what we that's not the way we use our Bibles around here, even though sometimes we bring pretty Bibles and expensive Bibles and electronic Bibles. The idea is, among other things, we want to use our Bibles like a really well-worn trail map to help us in practical ways to make sure that when we get to the hard spots in life, we take the right turns. We go the right way. And I'm just sure that we got a large crowd of people here today, and I'm just sure that a lot of you are like at the why in the road in your life, and you have a decision to make, and it might be really important for us to open our Bibles, like to get out the map and make sure that our life doesn't end up looking like, instead of like our trip was supposed to look like a happy family get-together, and it ended up being kind of like a survivor thing. So you don't need a helicopter to lift you off the island. Let's get the map out today. And let's look in Matthew chapter 27. So take your Bible, your map, and look in Matthew 27. We've reached the climax of the biblical story in Matthew 27. It is an account of our Savior, the Lord Jesus' crucifixion. In Matthew 27, verses 45 through 56, we're going to see some interesting things here in Matthew 27, 45 through 56. Now that you have your spot in the Bible, we're going to read there in just a minute. I want to, t- I want to suggest there are going to be some problems that you have. They're, they're universal problems. Everybody has them. And I, I'm going to put them on a slide here, and we're going to leave them up during the message so that we can refer back to these problems and tell me if these problems aren't problems that you have. Impossible problems that all human beings have, and you probably wrestle with them right now. You probably wrestled with them this week. Problem number one I'm going to list is guilt. Guilt. How of you are sitting next to somebody who looks guilty right now? Raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Guilt. We're all, we're all burdened with guilt. And we're all burdened with shame. And we all have that fear of judgment. Or we sure, certainly ought to. So this is universal human problem of guilt. Here's another one, and I, I think this is true with everybody. Maybe you wouldn't put it like this, but a, a feeling of distance. In other words, we long for intimacy... But our experience is often loneliness and alienation or misunderstanding. Even though we so hunger for intimacy and love and acceptance, we feel like we can't ever get as close to the people we love as we want to get to the people we love, right? Sense of distance. And really, if we're perceptive spiritual individuals, then we realize that there's this sense of distance between us and God, which lies at the base of all of that sense of alienation or distance. This is another impossible, common human problem that we all experience. Here's another one, weakness. We sang about it all throughout our songs this morning. Weakness. We have challenges that are beyond our abilities. Are you in agreement with me on that? You can't control the other people in your life who have such a profound effect on you. You can't control the circumstances of the economy, the politics. I mean, you just, we're weak through these things. And here's the big problem isn't the stuff that's outside of us. The big problem is us. Like, we're our own worst problem, right? We know what we ought to do, but we find ourselves not doing what we know we ought to do. So we're like morally weak. And this is especially true when we consider the law of God or what in our own conscience we know is right and wrong. And we try to do it all the time and we find we're weak. We can't do it. So guilt and distance and weakness 
And this is a huge one. If you're young, you don't get this. But hang around for a couple years, and you'll get it like the rest of us. And that is, you're getting old, and you're wearing out, and your parts aren't working like they used to, and you're wrinkling up, and you know you're going to die. Just want to encourage you with that today. (laughs) Knew you'd be pumped about that, you know. It's like, have you looked in a mirror recently? You know, you heard the old thing, you're not getting older, you're getting better. You're kidding yourself. You're getting worse and older. And you're wearing out and stuff is creaking and not working. You know what I'm talking about, right? And if you got an ache or a pain, all of a sudden you notice everybody else with the same ache or the same pain. And if you're my age, you cannot go out to eat with somebody and not talk about it. You can't. I'm serious. You're over there at Culver's eating a Sunday, which you know you shouldn't be eating. You put strawberries on top of it because, you know, it's fruit, right? And you're sitting there going, you know, you're talking about your doctor's visits and you're talking about your surgeries and you're talking about your medications. Try not to talk about that if you're over 50. Try. You can't do it. Why is that? Well, we're laughing, but it's serious because we're all dying. Just wanted to share that with you today. That's true. When you got born, you started wearing out right away. You might have gone up a little bit, but then after that, pretty much all downhill. The outward man is perishing, the Bible says. Yeah. So these are universal human problems. These are problems everybody has. I want you to keep these in mind right now because I didn't just draw them out of the air. I got them out of the Bible. And I want you to take your Bibles now, and I want you to keep these problems in mind, these problems that we have on the screen. Keep them in your mind as we study this part of the story of Jesus, the crescendo of his life, his crucifixion, the crescendo of what they call the biblical meta narrative, the big story of the Bible. And I want you to especially notice when we read the text this morning how God acts when Jesus dies. Notice how God acts when Jesus died. There are other players in the story, in the little brief part of the story we're going to read today. There are other people that act, but the main actor is God. And I want you to notice how God acts. What does God do in the story today as we read it? What's going on? And you're going to see that something supernatural is going on. God is actively and he's openly and he's symbolically involved. Like when you read the story today, you're going to see God is acting in a supernatural way. All right? So now let's just take our Bibles and let's read the story. It's in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45. Now in the sixth hour, until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. 9 a.m., 3 p.m. There was darkness over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him, let him alone. Let him, let him see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split, and the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. 
I'm going to read verses 51 and 52 again. Then behold, the veil of... Notice verse 45. The, there was a darkness over the whole land. After Jesus had been on the cross for three hours, at noon, darkness over the land. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn, verse 51, in two from top to bottom, and the earthquake and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and the bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to me. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So did you notice what happened here? Let's go over what happened just a little bit. And notice these things. Verse 45, Jesus had been on the cross three hours when it got dark, and it stayed dark from noon to three. This was a miraculous thing. In verse 46, Jesus cries out in the darkness. He's quoting Psalm 22. And most of the people that heard him would have understood that. This was mocking in verse 47 when they said he's calling for Elijah. They knew he wasn't calling for Elijah. In verse 48, someone brought him sour wine and a reed. This would mean the cross must have been fairly close to the ground. Verse 49, someone else mocks. Let him alone. See if Elijah will save him. In verse 50, Jesus cries out again in the darkness. And if you correlate all the counts, you see the various statements or cries from the cross. But he cries out again in the darkness. And this time, he chooses to yield his spirit. At this moment, Jesus chose to give his life. To give his life. It wasn't taken from him, but he gave it. And then the veil, in verse 51, the veil of the temple was torn. And the earth shook and rocks split. And then in verse 52, graves were opened and bodies of saints who had fallen asleep. The believing dead, some of them were raised. They appeared after the resurrection. Verse 53. Verse 54, the centurion and the soldiers that were with him, they were afraid. And they talked among themselves saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And then in verses 55 and 56, standing afar off, And watching were his friends from Galilee, those who had ministered to him. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. doesn't say it here. If you read John, you can see there were three Marys at the foot of the cross. So that's what happened. But did you especially notice what God did? When you read that, did you notice what God did? Just what happened here? What was going on when Jesus died? Listen, something was happening. You say, what does it have to do with me? Oh, it has a lot to do with you. It has everything to do with you. Keep in mind these problems. You have them or you will feel them keenly very soon. And what God does and these problems you're going to see, they fit together. Those among them with any spiritual sensitivity... It all must have stood at the cross when all this was happening and realized that something very unusual and supernatural was happening. Was a good man dying as an example here? Was this a guy that was just foolish and he was dying because he was foolish and he wouldn't let go of his little silly dream of being the Messiah? 
Oh, is something more happening here? Think about that just for a minute. Almost everybody agrees that there was everyone, every thinking, well-read person agrees there was a person in history named Jesus. People don't deny that. Thinking people, educated people, well-read people don't deny that. And, and they also agree, for the most part, that Jesus died, that this man, Jesus, died. And then the, then the path kind of splits. Believers know that Jesus is God, and he died on a prearrangement with his Father that was negotiated in time past, in eternity, that he willingly gave his life. The Father turned his back on him while he bore the sins of the world. There was a supernatural thing going on here. It wasn't just a good man dying as an example. And the reason we know it wasn't just a good man dying as an example or a man that was dying because of his own folly is because when he died, God spoke in some supernatural and powerful ways, in some symbolic ways. God supernaturally spoke in ways no one could miss and no one could forget. So if you'd been there, you would never forget this. And you would think about it all your life. There were people there that were bloodthirsty and eager for him to die. Sick, sadistic people. And there were others there who loved him standing afar off. They didn't want to see, but they couldn't turn away. But nobody could forget what happened, especially now that the air was punctuated with this kind of superna- these kind of supernatural actions. So what did the death of Jesus mean? Now let's look at this list again. When you're faced with guilt or shame or mistakes of your past or mistakes of your this morning or mistakes of your this week, what, what is that sin you can't seem to shake? What is that sin you don't want anybody to know about? What was that thing that you did or that period of your life that you wish you could rewind and you could take back? Or the sense of nagging emptiness in your soul, that kind of relational distance that you can't quite put a finger on and no one's ever been able to really satisfy. Or there is the ongoing sense that you can't do the things. You don't have the power, the ability to do the things you know that you ought to do or the things that you want to do, you find yourself unable to do those things. You just are characterized by weakness. We all have this. Then think about this list again. And what about that aging and death thing? Now, it's important that when you come to guilt or distance or weakness or when you're faced with a prospect of death that you don't make a wrong turn right now. It's really important that you consult the map and you stay on the path. It's very important. Think about this. If Jesus was an example and nothing more, if Jesus just died as an example, what a great guy. He had good teaching. He did nice things for people. People have embellished the stories over the years, you know, and he was just really basically a good man who died. Maybe he was a teacher from God and he died as an example. Then there's a big problem that all of us have. Matter of fact, all these problems that we have right here listed and a whole bunch of others, we're always going to have them. If Jesus only died as an example, that's really pretty frustrating news. Because all that does is it just makes these problems worse. If Jesus died as an example, what's, well, how's that going to help me with my guilt? If Jesus died as an example, how is that going to draw me into intimate, intimacy with God and make me feel fulfilled and joyful and happy? If Jesus just died as an example, then how am I going to have the power to overcome my weaknesses, especially my moral weaknesses? And if Jesus only dies as an example, then how is that going to help me when I come to die? 
But you see, we know that Jesus didn't die as an example. And the reason that we know is because God did miraculous things when Jesus died. And there were symbolic things, meaning that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for us. And so you see, if Jesus is just a nice man, or if he's a good teacher, if he just died as an example, then we're all doomed, right? And we're still in our guilt and our shame and our judgment and our distance from God and our weakness and our eventual death. But he was not just a good man. And we know this because of what God did. Four things, four big things that God did. There were others and there's more. But this, for our purposes this morning, devotionally, four big major things that God did here. He made it go dark. And darkness is clearly a sign and a symbol throughout the Bible of judgment. What was happening when it went dark? Jesus was taking the judgment for our sin and for our guilt. There's the amen part right there. He was taking the judgment for our sin and for our guilt. He was showing his mercy and God was accepting the payment that Jesus made for our sin. And he proved it by letting the world go dark. There was a symbolic darkness because Jesus was dying for our guilt and our shame. He was taking our judgment. And there was an earthquake and the rocks split and Jesus laid down his life. That was miraculous too. And we who are weak, God who is powerful acted on our behalf and he showed his power. And this all is like echoes in the hearts and minds of people who understood the law. When the law is given, there's an earthquake and there's darkness. And Jesus is putting to death the demands of the law on us. He's fulfilling the demands of the law on us from the cross so we don't have to be strong because He's strong. And so, the earthquake, the rocks splitting, and Jesus laying down His life When we see that, we who are weak, we recognize that God is powerful and he's acting on our behalf. And that God received Jesus' death on our behalf. And the veil was torn, separating the holy of holies from the outer part of the temple, the holy place. And the veil was torn, and it wasn't torn from the bottom up, but from the top down. So we who suffer alienation or distance from God are brought near by God through Christ. And that's actually brought near, but it's also in our emotions and in our affections brought near. And then people came to life, which would have been pretty impressive, don't you think? People came to life. They weren't seen immediately. They were seen after the resurrection. But when Jesus died, not when he rose, but interestingly enough here, when Jesus died, saints came to life. And that was symbolic. It was obviously symbolic of Jesus' death being received as the victory over death. That we would have one day have eternal life and we would have a resurrection. So God took Jesus' death for our judgment. We know that because of the supernatural darkness. God took Jesus' death as our way to have direct access to God. We know that because of the supernatural rending of the veil, the tearing of the veil. And God accepted Jesus' death as the power over the demands of the law, which we are too weak to fulfill. And we feel that every day. And we know that because the rock split and the earth shook and Jesus chose to lay down his life. And God accepted Jesus' death as the way out of death. And we know that because people came to life like little resurrection appetizers. What application would this have for us? You say, okay, okay, get that. I kind of knew that. I never really thought of it quite like that before. But if these things are true, what should that mean to me? I'm 
Pastor, I'm kind of going through some difficulty this week, and it's hard for me to concentrate on what you're talking about way back long ago because my problems are very much in my face. Well, you got to understand something, and it's super important to understand that, that what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel, the story of Jesus' life, his perfection, his death on our behalf, his, his burial and his resurrection, his ascension, the gospel story isn't something that we believe so that we're saved and then we set it aside. We get, oh yeah, I heard the gospel when I was little, I believe it, I'm saved, and I set it aside. And then I have to face the troubles of my life and the gospel is no help to me. No, that's not true. And I'll explain that in, in a minute. I want to make three brief applications of this to you that are believers already, because most of you are believers. Obviously, if you're not a believer, the application should be super clear and easy to see. Super clear and easy to see. And by the way, every time we meet, somebody comes in and visits who doesn't know the Lord. Or somebody who's been here a long time and they're not sure they know the Lord is here. Or maybe some little little person, little child is with us and they're just starting to get old enough to understand the gospel. So it kind of like supercharges the atmosphere when you think there are people that are here right now that today could go from like death to life. They could have their sin on them. They could have their sin lifted today. They could be saved. You realize that being born again is an instantaneous thing. So the application to you, if you don't know the Lord is, you need to get saved. And this will make a lot of sense to you. But if you're a believer, and most of you are, isn't it obvious? We should get good at telling this story. Because of the people in our lives that have problems like guilt, distance, weakness, and fear of death. This is the answer to that stuff. This is the answer to all of that and lots more. And it's the clear and final answer to it. So we should get good about it. We talk in our church about having a gospel conversation. I like that because it implies, you know, give and take. It implies a unique conversation, not just like I give you a little sales pitch for Jesus, but I listen to you and I kind of tailor make what I say to your heart. I had a gospel conversation with a dear person this week, just an awesome gospel conversation. I have prayed for this person a lot. I tried to be loving, but, to, but this week an opportunity for a gospel conversation. I was leaving the house, connected with this person. I said, tonight we'll talk. And for two hours, we just sat and had a two-hour rich conversation of the gospel. And so over and over again, I gave like probably a dozen scriptures about the gospel and a bunch of stories to make the gospel clear. And our conversation was punctuated with him saying to me, this is so interesting. I'm enjoying this so much. Now, that's, you know when you're in a gospel conversation with somebody who doesn't know for sure that they know the Lord, and they're saying, man, this is so interesting to me. I'm enjoying this so much. You're in the heart of the ministry right then. You want to have those gospel conversations with people that God uniquely put you next to them, not me, but you. This is what our church evangel. We're named after that. That's what we're about. So I'm having this gospel conversation, and the fellow says to me, you know, he's an attorney. He's a, he's, a, he's a bright guy who's done very well. He's an attorney. He said to me, tell you the truth, I really don't like to read at all, which surprises me. Recently, I had a meeting with a doctor like this. I was talking with him, and I said, well, here's a book you could read, and here's a book you could read. And he goes, you know, to tell you the truth, I really don't like to read. And I'm like, that makes me a little nervous, right? You're like, I, I, how did you learn to be a doctor? He goes, I don't know, I did it for that, but I don't like to read. I'm like, wow. And here was this attorney, a very bright guy, very competent. He says, I don't like to read, and so I'm just ignorant when it comes to spiritual things. I know He knows a lot about other things, a lot about other things, but in area of spiritual things, he said to me, I just don't know anything, and I'm enjoying this conversation. 
He said, I have never had somebody that I could just sit down to, sit down with and talk to about this before. I just think it would be revolutionary if we decided we're going to get good at having gospel conversations. We're going to be experts at the gospel. We're just going to get good at talking about the gospel. We're going to learn scriptures about the gospel. We're going to learn how to explain the gospel. We're going to learn stories that help make the gospel clear. We're going to be good listeners and good talkers about the gospel. If we did that, it could really, it could change people's lives forever. Somebody one day had a gospel conversation with you that changed your life forever. It doesn't matter. If you think about it, you, you might be intimidated like the people are really smart or they're professionals. You think, well, I can't really. T-. Hey, they might have a gap of ignorance in their life spiritually like my friend did. And they're just eager to talk to you because this is something you know. Let's all agree to be experts at the gospel so we can explain the gospel well to people. Let's learn how to explain the gospel well to people. This is something that will just ring in our hearts throughout eternity and it will have an effect. You ever want, you know how people are, they, they say, I want to make an impact with my life. You know, like I would like to win the Super Bowl, but the problem is I'm not good at football. So it makes it kind of hard, right? Or like to write a big, you know, thick book of theology or something. I don't know if I'm probably not the best guy to write a big, thick book of theology. But I can do one thing that will just continue to echo down through eternity. And that is, I could explain a gospel to somebody and they believe it and they're born again and their life changes and who knows what's going to happen after that. That should be very exciting to us. So that's one application. Get good at talking about the gospel. Get, get good at gospel conversations. Here's the second one, and this is just a practical thing. And again, I'm not pressuring all of you to do this at all. As a matter of fact, I, I, I kind of hope everybody doesn't sign up right at once because we're not ready for it. But little by little, more and more, we're going to be talking about the grow groups in our church. And that's really super important. It's, a big, it's like the grow group is the heart of our, of our kind of simple church vision that we have for our church. We want to get our church really good at connecting with people in our area to make Christ known to them. And a simple church idea is that idea. And the grow group is the heart of that simple church idea. So eventually, maybe not right away, but eventually we just like to see the whole church involved in one of these grow groups or a small group, what we call grow groups. And some of you wonder, well, how do I get involved in a grow group? And the, grab one of these little brochures has the stained glass window on it that's out on the information table and fill it out and turn it in or send me an email myself and my email address is in a bulletin and my email address is in this. And let me know, hey, I'm interested in being in a grow group and we'll help all of you who are interested eventually get connected with your own grow group. But here's the, the deal. Why is that important? One of the things, there's a bunch of stuff that happens in the grow group. The grow group is going to be the way our church prays in the future. So you ever notice like when we're growing, when growing up, we had prayer meeting and it was always the smallest meeting of the, of the church. And then we got Awana and youth ministries going on. So we got people doing a bunch of other stuff. But the way our church is going to pray in the future, especially is going to be in the grow groups because every grow group is a prayer meeting. And the second thing is a grow group is not like a Bible study, but it's like we were talking about a Bible doing. So it's more than just, oh, I study the Bible, but I don't do it. But rather when you get the Bible open, you go, what should I, what, you know, how can I wade into this and do something for God? And so you get a group of people together that open their Bibles and look for something to do that's godly. That's what a grow group does. And the third thing a grow group does is they, they want to reach out. And that gets, that's tough, right? It gets hard for us. But the idea about here is when we talk about this gospel conversation, you might think, 
I remember what you said, the Operation Evangel, evangelistic strategy in our church has four parts of it. Do you remember what the first one is? Pray, that's right. And the second one, after we pray, we love people. Love the people we're praying for. And the third thing is that we invite them. That's a third. And the fourth thing is that if we can, we have a go- when, when they're ready, we have a gospel conversation. But I know how it is. It's like, oh, I remember those, but I find about it week after week goes by and I forget to do it. Or week after week goes by and I know I should be praying for people and I know I should be intentionally loving people and I know I should be inviting people, but I forget to pick up that little invitation card, you know, that's out there. And I forget that. I think next week I'll do that and I'll invite somebody. But if you invite somebody now, it's amazing. People will come. I don't know if she's here today, but I shouldn't, but I go to McDonald's. And when I went to McDonald's, I saw this girl and, and, the, and the young lady says to me, where do I know you from? Where do I know you from? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I said, you know, the church right down here on the corner, I'm one of the pastors of that church. She goes, that's right. I got kicked out of that church. I go, well, you got unkicked out because I know, I know people who are under official church discipline and she's not on the list. So I said to her, hey, you come back. I'm the senior pastor. I'm giving you, uh, you know, my special permission to come back. And and she says, okay. And I go, you promise me you'll come back? Yes. I go, pound it. She pounds it. This week I went to McDonald's. I shouldn't have, but I went to McDonald's again. And she says to me, did you see me? I go, what? She goes, I was there. Did you see me? I go, no, where were you sitting? She told me. All I did was invite her. She and her daughter came to church. I said, what did you think? She goes, I don't know what to think of it, but my daughter kept reaching out to you. She liked you. I go, your daughter's a very bright child, you know? Come bring her back. Now, what about that? If we got 600 members with hundreds of people, they're just simply inviting people warmly. And do you realize some people think it's like an exclusive club and they can't come without an invitation? So give them an invitation. But really, if you're thinking about it, you got like, oh man, week after week go by and I know I want to do that, but I forget. How many of you are like that? You go, I meant to pray, but I forgot. Anybody like that? Raise your hand. I meant to pray, but I forgot. You're lying in church, people. Come on, work with me here. Yeah. You ever forget to pray? Anybody? Yeah. Raise your hand if you ever forget to pray. Seriously, you're not going to raise your hand about that? You're irritating me now. Yeah, you forget to pray, right? You say, oh, I need to pray for lost people. But you don't do it. Are you tracking with me on this? Yeah, you do that. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I come to church, but I'm not raising my hand. And I'm not going to answer any questions. Just give me your little speech and let me get to the buffet on time. I get it. I know what you're talking about. But we're not talking about that here. We don't want to have a bunch of pew-sitting people. Amen? We want missionaries here. People that love people that are lost and God after them and answer the questions and give them the gospel and embed gospel conversations in their lives and invite people to church. And we want to light this place up so stuff starts happening. So our kids start going, man, I don't want to be anywhere else but where God's changing people's lives. That's where I want to be. That's what's got to happen in this place. That's what this building was built for. That's why God gave us this corner in this wonderful place. Otherwise, we'd all move to Iowa or something where the crime rate's lower. But we're here because God puts lights in dark places. And so when we go to the grow group, the grow group, one of the things that grow group does is the leader of the grow group is kind of on this team. And they're going to very gently and sweetly and naturally remind you to pray and love and invite and have gospel conversations. And in all of that grow group thing, you're going to love it because you're going to drive away going, that was really cool. I felt close to those people. We did the one another. So the second application of this, Jesus died on the cross and God accepted Jesus' death on the cross. So 
I would just suggest that you get involved in a small Jesus group that's about that so you could pray about how you could touch other people's lives and your other group members can say, say, who have you been praying for? Or they can say, say, who have you been loving and how have you been loving them? We have grow groups. I won't tell what they're doing right now because it's kind of personal, but we have grow groups right now that are doing the sweetest things for people. I had a dear lady say to me today, she's not in a grow group, but she sees one, a group that's kind of meeting across the hall. And she says, it looks really interesting. And they leave their door open. But you know what she told me? She says, I cook for people. I'm like, yeah, tell me more. I'm liking this. I go, what do you cook? She's like, barbecued ribs. Like, seriously. And you know, this is God, right? Barbecued ribs. So she's alone, but she cooks for seven people a couple of times a week. And she portions up the food into single containers and she takes it to these people in her apartment complex who live alone. Now that's Jesus work. That's gospel work. That's pretty exciting stuff. And I hear about stuff like that all the time. We just want to go, that's the program here. So I would just say, since Jesus, our Savior, died on the cross and God, the Father, accepted his payment, that's a story we want to get good at telling and we want to get involved in Jesus groups so that we can be reminded and held accountable. But there's one other thing that I want to give you as an application that's super important. And that's this. And that is, understand the gospel is not just for your justification, but the gospel is for your sanctification too. Remember, justification is by grace through faith alone. Don't let anybody ever tell you different than that. Justification, or we're right with God, not by our works, but by the great work that Jesus did on the cross and his righteousness. So justification by faith. That's a great word our church teaches, and our whole area needs this. They're clueless about this. Justification by faith. You believe that? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we're saved. We're justified by faith. But we're not justified just to be justified, but we're justified so that we can grow in the Lord and be sanctified. Now, now here's a short word on what sanctification means. It means you sin less, and you sin, you sin with less frequency, and you sin with less intensity, and you feel worse about it when you do it. Okay, that's just like, there's more to it. But just think about that. Can I ask you a question? You're justified by faith. You're a believer. If, you, if I said, have you believed in Jesus Christ and you're saved, you would say yes. Then I, can I ask you, are you sinning less frequently? Can I ask your wife? Are you sinning less frequently? You say yes, if I can ask your wife. Well, never mind. Let's just leave it like a little personal thing. Are you sinning less frequently? Are you sinning with less intensity? Is it, you know, are your times that you don't sin getting further apart? And is the intensity of the sin getting weaker And are you grieved over your sin? Do you quickly confess? Are you grieved over your sin? These are some evidences of growth. Now, here's the thing I'm trying to say, though. How does that happen? Well, here's one of the things. Here's one of the great tools that God has given us in our sanctification. This may surprise you. The gospel is a great tool to help us sin less with less intensity, with less frequency, and to feel worse about it, which we should. To have a greater sense of guilt and desire to run is that we look at the cross. We consider that what Christ did, think how this works. Uh, Okay, imagine the sin you struggle with, okay? Again, if you don't know, check with your husband. He'll give you an example, right? Imagine the sin, your thing you want to stop doing, and it's bugging you, and it's bugging the people who know you, and it's costing you time or money, and you wish you could quit, but you can't, right? That sin's the one I'm talking about. 
Now, what you want to do is you, that, here's what we tend to do. We tend to think, oh man, I got to try harder. I guess I'll go to church and listen to one of those long, boring sermons, you know, and music I don't particularly like. But, you know, after all, I got to stop doing this stuff that I like doing so much. And so once a week I go, just kind of get beat up, you know, so that I can try harder next week. Well, that's not the program. That's the merit program. But we're on the mercy program, see? That's the merit program. We're on the mercy program. So what do we do with that sin? We take that sin, that sinful failure, the shame of it, and we, we see it in the light of the cross. We look at what Jesus did. We don't look at our unrighteousness so much. We look at his righteousness, that Jesus Christ, righteous, he died for our sin. And that has a sanctifying effect. Some people think in order to be sanctified, what we ought to do is we ought to scare the bejabbers out of people that maybe if they keep sinning, they're going to get unsaved. But the Bible doesn't teach you can get unsaved. The way it works is you get saved. And once you're saved, genuinely born again, you'll never be unsaved. So The program isn't God scaring you to death so that you'll think you're not going to be in the family if you do that again. No, you are forevermore in the family if you are genuinely born again. And that's the way God wired us so that we keep looking to the cross, keep going back to the cross over and over again. And as we go back to the cross and we look at the gospel again and we preach the gospel to ourselves, we sin less with less frequency and less intensity and we're quicker to be broken about it. So you want the gospel as an agent in your sanctification. That's really a really wonderful application of what has been given to us here and what God has shown us here. When I was a kid, they used to say the corn is supposed to be knee-high by the 4th of July. And in Ohio, down in Ohio, probably if you don't get too far north in Michigan, it's because of the hybrids and all. On a good year, if the if they got the planning done, if they got into the field quick enough there, that would almost always be true. But then the farmers would say that in August in Ohio, in central Ohio, it usually gets not like gorgeous and beautiful and cool and breezy like here in Michigan. It's hot and humid. There are a couple of three weeks in July in central Ohio when it gets super hot and super humid. And the farmers, everybody else goes, you know, looking for something cool, but farmers sit on the porch and this is what they say they do. They listen to the corn grow. That's what they say. Farmers are serious. They're not laughing when they tell you that. They go, if you listen, you can hear it growing. You're just like, are you serious? They go, yeah, you can hear it growing. Now, what's interesting, though, is that if you wa- you can sit and watch a stalk of corn, and you would never see it grow, but it would get bigger. Am I right? Some of you are here today, and you're like, man, I'm just discouraged. I heard a speech. I got saved a long time ago. I struggle with my sin. I feel so defeated. I can't seem to win. Listen, you are going to grow if you have the life of God in you. Sure as the corn in Ohio in August is growing, you are going to grow. And God is going to bring you to perfection. And it may not be anything anybody can see by looking at you immediately. But over time, they're going to recognize that you're growing. I just want to encourage you about that today. And the way that we can understand that is by understanding, and believe in the gospel. So if you want this message in a tweet, and if you can, you should tweet this. When Jesus died, God supernaturally demonstrated this. The cross is not a ladder to God. The cross is not a ladder to God. The symbol of the Christian faith isn't a ladder. The symbol of the Christian faith is what? A cross. And and we, we... like to see the cross without Christ on it, 
because that's a symbol of Jesus' finished work. We like to say he's not on the cross anymore. So we like to see a plain cross, like our cross there. You notice there's no picture of Jesus hanging from the cross because symbolically for centuries, Christians like us have said salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is finished. Tulian Chavijan is uh, Billy Graham's grandson. And I was directed to a blog post this week and I read it. And here's what he said at the end of his blog post. It's so profound. He said, God is not at the top of a ladder shouting, climb. He's not there saying, try harder. But he's at the bottom, bottom of the cross and he's whispering, it is finished. So believe. So for those who believe the cross is the end of our guilt and our shame and our judgment, for those who believe the cross is the answer to our weakness and our failure and our fear, for those who believe the cross is the end of our emptiness and our loneliness, and for those who believe the cross is the end of our fear of aging and sickness and death and aches and pains and all of that, do you believe? Chuck is here today. Chuck, when he was a little kid, our son Chuck over here, when he was a little kid, he would perch places. I noticed this week he, he perched on the kitchen counter. He's skinny and small and he can do that. He perched on the kitchen counter with his little earbuds in. We had the air conditioning on. So he put a stocking cap on. So it's in July, and he's got the stocking cap on, and he's perched on the counter, and he's reading his Bible. And I thought I was so humorous. I, I took a picture of it. I could show you, but I'd get in a little bit of trouble if I did that. It reminded me, when he was little, we would go driving in the country, and we weren't supposed to do this, but he would get out of his seatbelt, and he would perch on the back seat of the van like a little bird and just look around. And we would watch a movie. Sometimes we'd watch a movie, and the movie would be suspenseful or scary, He wouldn't come down into the room. We had a staircase. He would sit at the top of the staircase and he would just kind of look around the corner. He wouldn't actually come into the room. He would just watch from a distance because he felt like he was at a safe distance. God the Holy Spirit has arranged an interesting kind of anticlimactic way for this text to end. Do you notice how it ends? God is the big actor. He acts in like profound supernatural ways. And then there are a couple little comments. And then the soldiers who at once were mocking him are now saying, surely this was the Son of God. And there were a little cluster of people that were distant from the cross. And they're watching from a distance, dear loyal friends from Galilee, women that had supported him. Why were they watching from a distance? Don't you suppose it was this, I can't stand to see this, but I can't really look away. I can't stand to watch this, but I really can't. It's impossible to look away. And we who love him will never get the scene out of our minds, right? We'll never get the scene out of our minds. We don't ever want to get the scene out of our minds. As a matter of fact, a songwriter has put it beautifully. Pastor and Mrs. Pine are going to come and actually sing this. You remember this song? It's to, it's, it's to a beautiful Irish melody. I will forever lift my eyes to Calvary.